We have a, a passage today, and we're, we're still in Matthew chapter 12, and this is an example of one of those passages that is extremely short. It's just a few verses, but the, the kind of can of worms that it opens is absolutely massive. So I want to jump right in and give ourselves plenty of time to talk about it. This is Matthew 12, starting in verse 46. This is about Jesus. It says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's it. That's the whole section that we're going to cover today. And right off the bat, you read that, and most people, it, it's a negative-sounding passage. Like you read it, and you're like, you got Jesus sort of being dismissive towards his earthly family, and then immediately after that, saying this really kind of scary-sounding thing about, hey, you want to know who's actually in my family? It's the people who do the will of God. And so right off the bat, you have, again, this, this sort of dismissive attitude towards his family, followed up with this kind of almost legalistic-sounding thing he says. And so it, it most of us in the Western world read this verse and it kind of freaks us out a little bit. And I want to say, this is almost always the case, when you understand what's really going on in this verse, and especially in the context that it's in, not only are you going to see it's not primarily about his earthly family, but it actually is incredibly beautiful good news, not bad news. So we can start by just talking about his family because this is the situation. Jesus is, he's in a house, he's teaching his disciples. He's been teaching and, and having debates back and forth for this entire chapter. And his family shows up and Jesus gets the like, like some of you have an embarrassing, embarrassing memory about being at a slumber party or a school function and being told that your mom's there to talk to you. This is a similar type of situation. And we'll see in a second why they're doing this probably. But what's odd and what hits you odd at the very beginning of it is that Jesus, this is how it's being described, he's inside. And the people who are listening to him, his disciples, the people who are following him, they're inside with him. But Jesus' earthly family, his mother and his brothers, they're outside. They're not part of the group that's with Jesus. And they come up and they ask to talk to him. And Jesus replies by saying, you want to know who my mother and my brothers are? It's the people who are doing the will of God. seems weird at first. The truth is, if you're familiar with some of the teachings of other gospels, there's not that much said after the first couple chapters of some of the gospels about Jesus's earthly family, but what we do know makes it actually less surprising that they're not inside with all of the disciples. This is from John chapter 7. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Galilee is where Jesus is from, so this is where you kind of expect him to interact with his family. It's also where he is in the story in Matthew 12 we're looking at today. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And here's the key. For not even his brothers believed in him. That's interesting. That kind of comes and goes, but that's an important insight. Remember, Jesus has grown up in his family, and then he begins his earthly ministry, and there's all of these claims that are being made about him, that he's the Messiah, that he's, he's doing these incredible miracles. And his brothers, at least at this point in his ministry, don't believe him. In fact, Mark goes a step farther. It's not as clear in Mark, but it looks like his family in, in Mark actually says that he's crazy. They go, we've got to stop this guy from doing this stuff. He's crazy. And if you have siblings, you know like, that's not that surprising of a thing for his siblings to think. Like, I have a million siblings. Many of you guys know that. Oh, there's one. I just looked right at one of them, too. This is awesome. Um, I have three sisters and two brothers. And I can tell you, of everyone on the planet, 
who, who could try and fail to convince me that they're like the Messiah or the Son of God, the people I'm the least likely to believe in all the world are my brothers and sisters. You know what I mean? Like if my brother came up to me and he was like, hey, guess what? I'd be like, nope, not you. Because I know what you were like when you were five. You know what I mean? And so we don't know why exactly, but that's the kind of relationship we have here. These people who grew up with Jesus and knew him, and this extends even to his hometown in general. They are the least likely to believe his message. So when his siblings show up with his mom and they go, come out here, the fact that they're not in there with the disciples isn't that surprising. And there's a point I want to make that's really important before we move on, which is that even though Jesus comes across in this passage like he's being kind of dismissive or even disrespectful to his family, you got to know that it's very, very clear in the rest of the Gospels that Jesus had a positive relationship with his family, that he showed respect to them. The Gospel of Luke goes out of its way to say that Jesus in his upbringing respected his parents and listened to them and cared about them. You even see him at the end of John. It's a beautiful moment. At the end of John's gospel, Jesus is on the cross, and as he's dying, he looks at his mother and makes sure that she's going to be taken care of. He actually assigns one of his disciples to care for her. So incredibly positive relationship in general, and that's part of how you know that the main point he's making isn't really about them. So there's two kind of things going on, the the sort of surface meaning and then what's happening deeper in the context of the section. The surface meaning is really obvious. He goes, listen, flesh and blood relationships, my earthly family, these earthly ties, As important as they are, they are not the primary family that I have. The family that matters most are these people with me here who are doing the will of my father alongside me. So the point he's making isn't necessarily to like diss his family. The main thing he's saying is to elevate those disciples who are doing the will of the father alongside him. Saying the strongest of earthly ties can't compete for your loyalty with your loyalty to Jesus, to the will of God. He goes, my family are the people who do the will of my Father in heaven. So that's the kind of meaning that's, that's at work on the surface. But if you know what's happening in this whole section, there's a, a deeper level that is even more significant, and it's the main point Jesus is making. Because, I mean, no Bible verses happen in a vacuum, and this is a great example of this. Jesus doesn't just say this out of nowhere. This section, you'll know this if you've been here week after week, this section comes at the very end of a long section of arguments and debates and controversies between Jesus and the Pharisees. So you have the Pharisees, they're this group in Israel, very popular with the common people, very focused on obeying the law of God and obeying the teachings of the rabbis, and they have been after Jesus for this entire chapter so far. I mean, chapter 12 opens with the Pharisees accusing Jesus' disciples of violating Sabbath law, which is a big deal. You could get the death penalty for that in Israel. Not under Rome, but according to Israel's laws, you could. Then they accuse Jesus of being a Sabbath breaker because he heals someone on the Sabbath. Then they plot to kill Jesus, and Jesus knows about that, the text says. And finally, we have the Pharisees saying that Jesus was a demonically empowered sorcerer. Jesus does a miracle, and the Pharisees say he's doing that through the power of Satan. Again, that's a serious accusation to make. So this statement comes on the heels of all of those controversies and debates, and you can tell they're supposed to go together because it starts by saying, while he was still speaking to the people. So Matthew is intentionally tying this section to everything that came before it. So what does this mean to the Pharisees? The Pharisees, more than anybody, think that they are okay with God because they're in the family of Israel. They think, hey, we've got, you know, our ancestry in Israel. That means we're God's people. So we're good. We're solid. We're in the family of God. And you know they think that because if you go all the way back to Matthew chapter 3, this is one of John the Baptist's biggest critiques of them. Before Jesus even starts his ministry, 
John the Baptist is on the scene and he has his own controversies with the Pharisees. And one of the things he says to them is, do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our ancestor because God is able to raise up even from these stones ancestors, or sorry, children for Abraham. So the point that John's making is, you guys think just because Abraham is in your ancestry, which is just a way of saying you think just because you're Israelites, that you're good with God. Not the case. God can make new children for Abraham anytime he wants to. And so Jesus here is making a similar critique, and he almost uses his earthly family as an object lesson to say something about the Pharisees. And this is like the statement that kind of caps off this whole section of controversy. There's going to be more later, but we're going to move into a different section with some parables starting next week. This kind of concludes the section. And so he sees his family come up and takes it as a teaching opportunity and says, hey, just because you're part of the right earthly bloodline, doesn't mean you're inside the family. In fact, just like his family is outside of the house where Jesus is teaching, the Pharisees, though they think they're in, they're actually outside. So the main thing Jesus is doing here, this is, this is the key, the main thing he's doing here is giving one more cutting, brutal critique of the Pharisees and their understanding of themselves. He's telling them one last time, hey, you think you've got everything figured out. You think you're in the family. You think everything's settled just because of your bloodline. It's not about bloodline. Here's the thing, though. If you have your heart open and your mind open and you're aware of yourself and you know yourself, then this is, for most of us, if not all of us, a critique that we need to receive, too. I mean, Jesus, he says something that, you know, for all of us Gentiles is very comforting. Being in the family is not the main thing. But look at what he says is the main thing. This is how he says what demonstrates that you're in the family of God. He says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And as a modern Christian, that's like not really what you want him to say. You want Jesus to be like, you want to know who my family is? It's everyone who believes in me. You want him to be like, the people in my family are the people who say that they are Christians or the people who have put their faith in me, the people who have invited me into their heart. That's the kind of thing you want Jesus to say. But it's not. He says, you want to know who's in my family? It's the people who obey God. And that's scary. And some of us immediately are going to react to a statement like that and be like, this is legalism. Like, you're talking about legalism, but I'm not the one saying it. This is from the mouth of Jesus in the pen of Matthew, Right? And the uncomfortable truth about it is this is totally not the only place where you find statements like this coming from the mouth of Jesus. It's not even the strongest one. Five chapters ago in Matthew 7, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Meaning not everyone who claims allegiance to me by calling me Lord, which just means master. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who do the will of my Father in heaven. The exact same phrase five chapters ago. Who? Who enters the kingdom of heaven? Once you do the, that's uncomfortable. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's something really similar. He has this metaphor about one man who builds his house on sand, and then when the waters come, they wash away his house because he built it on a bad foundation. And then he says, there's another person who's like someone who built his house upon the rock. And he says, the person who built his house on the rock is like everyone who hears these words of mine and and in your head, you want to be like, believes them. Everyone who hears the words of Jesus and believes them is like someone who built his house on the rock. But do you know what he says? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. That's heavy. 
And it's not just in the Gospels. If you read through the, the books of the New Testament written by Paul and others, you'll find that right alongside the beautiful doctrine of justification by faith, you also find these giant lists. We call them vice lists and virtue lists because they're lists of, of things Paul just says, hey, Christians, this is the stuff you've got to stop doing. And this is the stuff you've got to start doing. And you read through those and it's sort of like, again, if it wasn't like the Holy Spirit-inspired apostle Paul writing it, there'd be accusations of legalism getting thrown around. But the bottom line is the Bible consistently teaches that for the Christian, it is not just about what you believe and it's not just about what you think. What you do matters. What you do is an integral part of what it means to be a Christian. To obey God, like Jesus says right here, to obey God is a central piece of what it means to be a Christian. And there's probably no New Testament author who talks more clearly about this than James. The book of James is, is all about this interplay of, of what we do as Christians. What kind of things are Christians supposed to do? And I think you get the clearest statement because once you've kind of accepted that and gone like, okay, I'm with you. There's clearly we got more to say about this, but being a Christian, what you do matters. So what am I supposed to do? James puts it the most plainly of anybody who writes in the New Testament, in my opinion. And he says this. This is kind of the thesis statement for his whole book, James 1.27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I love this because he makes it so straightforward. He's like, you want to know what the religion is that God likes? What's Christianity supposed to look like? Well, there's a, a, a horizontal element to it and there's a vertical element to it. You care for the widow and the orphan which is, he means that literally, but he also means them as representatives of the most desperate and the most vulnerable in your world. So he says, you care for the desperate, the vulnerable, and the needy. That's the horizontal element. But there's also this vertical element that you, you keep the moral teachings of God. You take them seriously. You live a morally upright life where you obey the things that God tells you to do. And here's the thing. That's incredibly straightforward and clear, but Christians, both individuals and Christian movements, have an incredibly hard time doing both of these at the same time. Have you ever noticed that? There's a lot of tension between Christians right now. I don't know if you've any, any of you have noticed this. If you haven't, it means you're not on the internet and praise God, continue doing that. <laughs> but if you're looking at the internet, you know it's not just like, there's not just tension between Christians and non-Christians in the world for the last who knows how many years. Christians fight with each other just as much and sometimes worse. And I am convinced that the main reason for that disunity between Christians is because some Christians pick one of these things and some Christians pick the other one. Some Christians prioritize loving others and they commensurately devalue moral uprightness and taking the moral commands and teachings of Jesus seriously. Some people say it's all about the staying unstained and not, you know, being immoral or doing bad things, but they don't care for the widow or the orphan. At least they don't talk about it. And, you know, the... <laughs> Like I said, I honestly think this is kind of at the center of most of the disagreements and the fighting that you see between Christians. It's the inability to do both of those things at the same time. The first time where I really ran into this and kind of saw it straight up had to do with this verse. I was at a conference in Texas and it was a conference that was all about foster care and orphan care and it was really a, a great, great experience. But one of the gifts that they gave out to people was a book bag that's, and they advertised it saying, hey, if you fill out this form or whatever, you get a free bag that has James 1.27 on it awesome. But this is what was on the bag. It says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. That's beautiful. I love that. Anybody notice what's wrong with it? 
It's half the verse. And they had like the audacity to put a period in an end quote and then not even write James 127a. You know what I mean? Which is one of our ways of saying we're only using part of the verse. They took off the part that didn't match the message they wanted to say. And if that isn't both a metaphor for a problem and the problem itself at the same time, I really don't know what is. But the merciful and compassionate side of Christianity doesn't have a corner on this particular type of problem. You can also find tons of stuff like this. Just go Google James 127 and do an image search. This says, refuse to let the world corrupt you, James 127. That's great. That's a great thought. It's just not what James 127 says. It's, I mean, it's actually not what James 127 says at all. There are even worse ones. This is the worst one I found. I refuse to let the world corrupt me, James 127. Now, I refuse to let the world corrupt me. That is a great thing. That's a great way to live your life. That's a great statement to own and hold on to. It's just not what James 127 says. And to put it like that with a period and act like you're saying the entire verse, it just shows you what the problem is. Christians tend to either prioritize the horizontal or prioritize the vertical. And we have a really hard time doing both. And so when it comes to doing the things that Christians are meant to do in the most general way possible, I want to tell you this morning, especially now, now more than ever, you have got to resist, you have to refuse to submit to a false dichotomy that splits James 127 in half. Do not believe the lie that Christians only do half of this. That to be a good Christian means you only care for others and it doesn't matter if you actually take seriously the teaching of Jesus. Or that you only draw really firm moral lines and don't do anything for the weak and vulnerable and helpless. Christians for 2,000 years have been distinguished by the fact that we do both of these things. We care for those who God cares for and God cares for the vulnerable and the desperate and the helpless. And we, because we're trying to obey Jesus, we, like Christians, always have have to draw our moral lines in a drastically different place than the rest of the people around us in culture. So I want to encourage you, as you look at the kind of online discourse, as you talk to other Christians, as you shape your Christian life, do not prioritize half of this verse and throw away the other half. And don't look at Christians who are trying to do both and see that just because one is being emphasized above the other, it's about both. It's always been about both. And by the way, this is not the only place in the Bible that says this. This is just another way of communicating the idea that you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. I think this is what Paul means when he says, be in the world, but not of the world. And so here's where it kind of gets awkward, though. You're like, now it's going to get awkward? <laughs> all of this is about obedience. And that's at the center of what Jesus is saying in the passage in Matthew 12. He's saying, you want to know who's in the family? The demonstration of family identity is obedience. And like I said at the beginning, many people hear that and immediately react by saying, this is legalism. It's legalism. And so I want to get ahead of that and, and kind of, this is in the words of John Piper, he talks about how Christians need to get the boogeyman of legalism out of their closet. Because every time someone starts talking about taking the moral teachings of Jesus seriously, about being obedient to the commands of Scripture, someone is going to say, that's legalism. We only should talk about grace. We're Christians. Of course we believe in grace. Of course we love grace. But the Bible has a lot to say about being obedient. And so I want to just really, really, in the simplest level, define what legalism is for you so that when somebody makes that accusation, you can know whether it's valid or not. Because there is such a thing as legalism. 
This is what legalism is. Legalism is the belief that your righteous works can save you. That makes sense? Legalism is the belief that the good things I do are the things that make me okay with God. Meaning, I have a problem with sin, there's a separation between me and God, and the way for me to get back to God is to do good things. That is legalism. And we denounce that along with the clear teaching of Scripture. The difference is a, is a cart and horse difference. And that's the key to understanding this. Obedience and legalism aren't the same thing. You just have to have the cart and the horse in the right direction. For the Christian, obedience is always from salvation, not for salvation. Does that difference make sense? I'm about to institute the rule that I learned from a public school teacher, which is that you, I'm going to ask you if something makes sense and you have to give me a thumbs up or down or sideways. <laughs> I'm just I'm not going to do that. But this is, it's, this is really important. Obedience is something that comes from your salvation, not something that earns you salvation. You're saved by grace, and as a response to that grace, as a result of that grace, and I would say an inevitable result of that grace, you begin to be obedient. And so your obedience isn't the thing that saves you, but as Jesus said, it's a thing that demonstrates that you're in the family of God. And that's the key to understanding that. Jesus isn't making a causal statement about the family of God. He's making a descriptive statement about the family of God. He's saying this is what the people in this family are like, not how they get into the family. And that's why, to me, the image of family is perfect because that metaphor is actually something that, that we can apply to and we can understand. Let me give, give you an example of what I mean. When you join a family, the vast majority of people, the way that happens is you're either born into it or you're adopted into it, right? Once you're in that family, you're in it. You got that family's name, you're part of that family. Then the parents and the other members of the family start to intentionally and probably more unintentionally teach you what it means to be a part of that family. What kind of behavior does this family do? What kind of things do we not do? And again, for parents, you know a lot of that stuff is not some stuff that you're teaching them on purpose, right? But let me give you an example. How many of you guys are Giants fans? This, these are troubling days. <laughs> not for me. I, I couldn't care less, but those of you who raised your hands look around going like, what? Then who are you fans of? <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm hoping I can find one, and I bet I can. How many of you have at some point had a baby and then put that baby in a Giants onesie? <laughs> I knew it would be Cam, yes. I am not kidding, I saw you come into church today and I was like, Cam is gonna help this, this message work because I guarantee you he's done it. There's nothing wrong with this. I'll say that up front. So Cameron has a son. His son's name is Levi. It's the same age as my daughter. And Levi's one month old. Cam puts him in a giant's onesie. Probably puts a little giant's hat on him. Probably props him up next to a little tiny commemorative giant's bat that costs like 40 bucks at the giant's game. <laughs> Takes a picture. My baby boy is a giant's fan. Now, let me ask you. This is not an, as easy of a question as it sounds like. Is Levi a Giants fan as a one-month-old baby? No? Cam's like, yes. Definitively, yes. Honestly, I really mean this. Just think about it later. I think there's a, a, a way of understanding it where the answer is yes. I mean, he's, he's an Eversole. He's part of a family of Giants fans. And until he grows up enough to decide that he doesn't want to be a part of that, that's the default setting. You default to being a Giants fan if you're part of that family. And maybe someday he'll grow up old enough and say, Dad, I'm an L.A. fan. And then Cameron's going to have to kick him out, <laughs> which is going to be so sad for everybody. You guys see what I'm saying? There's a sense in which, no, you, you're part of this family. And this family, we're Giants fans, right? 
Somebody after, Jeff Adams after first service, he, gave, he said the perfect example of this is he establishes a very important rule in his family, something that defines their family. And that is that when it's pizza night, this family eats the crust. That's what he said. He goes, you want another piece of pizza? Eat the crust. Because this family eats the crust. And that's a silly example, but this is, this is real. And I think it gets at the heart of what Jesus is talking about. I'll give you a more, a more real example. Although that is a real example. So I have two children, I have two daughters, one's two and one's four. We're about to have a son in the next couple of weeks, so please be praying for my family. Um, thank you. And so, so my four-year-old and my two-year-old, both girls, wonderful, awesome. It means my house is full of fun and joy, but also like noise and drama. You guys know what I'm talking about? And so if you were to come to my house on any weeknight, there's a very good chance you'll hear me say something that I say a lot, which is, hey, in this family, we don't yell at each other. We don't talk to each other like that in this family. Now, again, let me ask you, is that true? I mean, my daughter's in my family, and she just was. That's the reason why I said that. Is her position in my family threatened by me saying that? Of course not. She's part of my family. She can't get out of my, nothing she can do could make me say you're no longer my daughter. But I look at her and I set the expectation. In this family, we don't yell at each other. You don't yell at your sister. I don't yell at your mom, she doesn't yell at me, and we don't yell at you. That one I, I feel a little convicted about because you're, <laughs> you're not really supposed to lie in church, but. Like I said in first service, I feel like if you define yelling properly, then I never yell at my kids. Um, I talk loud sometimes. But you guys see what I'm saying? And if my four-year-old, Jubilee, came up to me and said, Dada, I yelled at Phoebe. Am I still in, in our family? That's actually the kind of misunderstanding you can imagine a four-year-old having. Am I still in the family? You said our family doesn't yell and I just yelled. You know what I would tell her, right? Be like, oh, baby, I didn't mean it like that. Of course you're still in the family. You're my daughter forever, no matter what. But we're gonna learn what it means to be a part of this family. And in our family, we don't yell at each other. This is what Jesus is getting at. He's not telling you how to get into the family, and he's not giving a warning of something that's gonna get you kicked out of the family. He is describing what the family is like. It's a much more serious, much more significant version of saying, in this family, we don't yell. Jesus is saying, my family, my mother, my brothers, my, son, my sisters, they're the ones who do the will of the Father in heaven. And speaking of family, we just read a giant thing from the book of James, right? Really significant verse. Anybody know who that James is? Jesus' brother. Do you know that? That's confirmed by the witness of the early church, but also the Apostle Paul in Galatians. He says, he calls James the brother of the Lord. James is Jesus' earthly brother. And what I love to think about is that James, the, the New Testament's very clear, at some point he didn't even believe Jesus was the Messiah. He was one of the ones going, this guy's crazy. He's one of the ones kind of challenging his brother and being like, hey, if this is all real, then go do it in Judea. Do it in front of everybody. Because he didn't believe in him. There's a really good chance that he was standing there with Mary and his other brothers outside that house in that story we just read in Matthew 12. Hey, tell Jesus to come out here. We've got to talk some sense into this guy. And maybe, we don't know this, but maybe he even heard Jesus in that room say, oh, you want to know who my mother and my brothers are? It's the ones who do the will of the Father. 
And at some point, we don't know when, James changed his mind about his brother. It was revealed to him, this actually is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. And here's how he introduces himself at the beginning of his letter. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you and me would start our letter by being like, hey, everybody, listen to what I say because I'm Jesus' actual brother. You know what I mean? That would be the most important thing about you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, I'm James. I'm an Israelite from the tribe of Judah, prominent tribe, big deal. He doesn't. He identifies himself the same way that you and I do. The way I relate to Jesus, James says, is I'm a saved servant just like you guys. My primary familial relationship isn't the earthly one, it's the spiritual one. Because James understood what John says in John 1. John writes, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's what we're watching play out between Jesus and the Pharisees. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. All who receive him and believe in his name receive the right to become children of God. This is the cart and horse of obedience that helps you avoid legalism and helps you avoid um, the opposite of legalism, which the fancy word for it is antinomianism. That's just the idea that there are no rules because it's all grace. That's how you avoid both of those traps. How do you become a child of God? You receive, in Jesus and believe, you receive Jesus and believe in his name. Once you have done that, you start the work of learning what the family rules are and taking them seriously and obeying them. But look again at what Jesus said, because this is, this is why this is so important. This is why it's worth taking an entire Sunday on these four verses. Because we read this, and because we're so afraid of judgment and we're so afraid of legalism, we read this as a negative thing. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You have to know, for all of church history, for 2,000 years, that verse has been the profoundest, deepest comfort imaginable to Christians who had to give up their earthly family to become Christians. That's been the reality for 2,000 years and still around the world today. There are people for whom deciding to become a Christian means my family will disown me forever unless there's a miracle. And so for them to read this and say, well, Jesus says, whoever does the will of the Father in heaven, that's his brother, that's his sister. So I'm not losing a family. I'm actually stepping in to the most important family in all reality. I have a friend um, in East Africa. He's about my age. He became a Christian years ago. He's a pastor now. But he became a Christian because he was a waiter at a restaurant where some missionaries used to go eat regularly. And they would talk about Jesus. And, and he actually came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God way before he declared himself a Christian, way before he got baptized. And the barrier to doing that, the barrier to saying, I'm going to be a Christian now, was not belief. He had believed for a long time. The barrier was that he knew his entire family, who were all Muslim, would disown him if he did that. And this is in a, a part of the world where your family disowns you, you might not get to eat today. And so this young man had to decide, I'm going to go down into the waters of baptism and I'm going to come up disassociated from my earthly family forever. Some of you in the room today have had to do that. It's not as common here, but some of you have had to do that. I know personally there are people in this church who that's your reality. This verse, for you, for everyone, every Christian, should be the profoundest comfort Whatever's going on with your earthly family, God cares about your earthly family. He wants to see redemption and reconciliation in those relationships. But in the midst of that, man, you're part of the family of God. You're brought into the, Jesus says, you're my brother, you're my sister. And it's really cool because a lot of the time in Greek, one word can be used for brothers and sisters, 
But there's two different two words in this. Jesus actually says, my brother, my sister, and my mother. If you're a Christian, you're part of the family of God. And the only reason that's possible, not about any obedience of yours, no good thing you did, it's the obedience of your faithful big brother. This is how Paul talks about it in Galatians. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now that's complicated. We could easily, I could easily accidentally talk about this verse for like 20 minutes, but I'm not going to. But look at this word, redeem. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. The word redeem there is this Greek word, exagorazo. It has the same root as the word agora, which is what Greeks called the marketplace because it means to buy. The main primary meaning of that word redeem is just to purchase something. So the image is really specific and really powerful. You're adopted into the family of God because God paid for you. You're not like a, a lost puppy, stray cat or something, following God around through the streets until finally God's like, okay, you can come and live with me. You're also not like an adorable orphan who God's saying like, oh, I just have to look at him. He's so wonderful. My family won't be complete without him. No, God sees you in slavery to darkness. That's the image, slavery. And he says, I will pay whatever is necessary to adopt that son or that daughter into my family. And so he pays the immeasurable price the life of his son to welcome you into his family. And Paul says, once you're in, not only are you not a slave, you don't just switch from being slave to the enemy to being the slave of God, you actually become a son and a full heir, adopted child of God, heir of all of the grace, mercy, goodness, and blessings that only Jesus actually deserves. And so we conclude where we always conclude, which is with recognition of that price that was paid to put you in the family of God. It's not your obedience that gets you there. This is why that cart and that horse are of such tremendous importance in the Christian faith. Because you didn't do anything to earn a spot. It was the obedience of Jesus, your big brother, who got that spot for you. And so we come to communion every week and say, man, I get to be an adopted son or daughter of God Almighty with all of the benefits that an heir should have. There's one good heir who actually deserves that. It's Jesus. But all of those benefits and gifts and blessings are conferred upon you by the grace of God because of the price that was paid to bring you into that family. So I'd invite you to stand with me as we remember the body of Jesus broken for you. He says to do this in remembrance of him. And as we learn what it means to be in that family, and as we fight to become better and better at obeying those family rules, to look like we fit, to actually look like what we are, sons and daughters of God, we remember that the entry into that family was paid by the blood of Jesus, the true Son of God, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We do this in remembrance of him. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness, 
I thank you for the fact that we have, according to this passage, a family, an eternal family that we are a part of. I pray that everyone in here, whether they struggle with legalism or whether they struggle with antinomianism, whether they struggle to, to keep themselves unstained from the world or whether they struggle to love their neighbor, I pray that all of us would start from that starting place of recognizing our entrance into your family is by grace because you paid what we could never pay in order to redeem us from slavery and welcome us into your family. And I pray, Lord, that that grace and forgiveness, that sense of security and safety within the family of God would be the starting point from which we pursue obedience and faithfulness to be the family that you describe who do the will of your Father in heaven. We love you. We thank you. Let us become more like you every day by your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.